Welcome to The Dr. Medic, everyone, where I will do my best to bridge the gap between research and practice and the world of helicopter EMS and all of paramedicine. Catch the full effect of these podcasts with all the visuals over on YouTube, but for now, let's get started. We have ourselves a pregnant woman sitting on a toilet, having herself a pregnancy-related emergency. Two EMTs show up to help. Eventually, we have ourselves a baby found in a toilet with a call ending with the baby transported to the emergency department in a biohazard bag. But the baby was alive. What in the world went wrong on this call? Coming up on this episode of The Dr. Medic. This call takes place on August 4th, 2022 in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, which is just about 25 minutes north of Providence, Rhode Island, and about 90 minutes south of Boston. A Woonsocket Fire Department ambulance was dispatched to the female patient's residence at 12.18 p.m. and arrived just five minutes later at 12.23. The EMTs, who in this case are actually licensed as EMT cardiacs, more on this in a bit, found the patient in the bathroom where she must have just delivered a premature baby into the toilet. The EMTs noted that the baby was in the toilet and that the umbilical cord was still attached with the placenta possibly still awaiting delivery, meaning that the other end of the umbilical cord was most likely still inside the mother. The EMTs clamped the umbilical cord, performed an ophthalotomy, a fancy word for cutting the cord, and then they left the baby in the toilet to escort the mother out of the bathroom and into the living room. One of the EMTs then returned to the bathroom and pulled the baby out of the toilet. He determined that the baby did not have a brachial pulse, where he then stimulated the baby's feet, which did not elicit any type of movement from the baby. As if this story wasn't strange enough, it gets even stranger at this point. One of the EMTs then wrapped the baby's body up in a towel and placed it into a biohazard bag. And then they transported the mother to the hospital, which in this case was Landmark Medical Center. The patient obviously was transported secured to the stretcher, but the baby, who was in the biohazard bag, was placed behind the mother at the head of the stretcher. There must have also been a fire engine on this call, which in case you were wondering why a fire engine would show up to a call, click on this video up here for a more detailed explanation. But anyway, there must have been a fire engine on this call because when they got to the emergency department, the two EMTs transported the mother inside, but chose to leave the baby outside in the ambulance, inside the biohazard bag, with another wound socket fire department member who was not one of the two attending EMTs on the call. And while inside the emergency department, the EMTs are giving a report to the nursing and medical staff when one of the physician asks, where's the baby? One of the EMTs then escorts the emergency department charge nurse back out to the ambulance to retrieve the baby. Once the baby was then brought into the emergency department, the ER staff could now palpate a pulse and then they subsequently attempted to fully resuscitate the baby. Sometime thereafter, the resuscitation efforts were sadly ceased 
and the baby was pronounced dead by the ER physician. A complaint was then filed against both of these EMTs, with the matter being referred to the Rhode Island Department of Health, which regulates EMS in that particular state. An investigation was completed with the department ultimately deciding to indefinitely suspend the licenses of both EMTs due to their failure to comply with several Rhode Island statewide EMS protocols, but moreover, due to their gross negligence in providing medical care, their unprofessional conduct related to current EMS best practices and standards of EMS, and violation of federal and state law. Both of the EMTs were able to appeal, but I couldn't find any documentation as to whether or not that happened. How in the world could this happen? Well, I can imagine that most of you may think that everything in this case was very obvious and that these EMTs are, should be expected to always do the right thing every time. Well, in the real world of EMS, there is always more to the story and things are not always so obvious. So let's take a look at the reasons to, to why the State Department of Health suspended their licenses and maybe we can paint a better picture. The first justification for suspending their licenses was for not following their statewide protocols. In the United States, out-of-hospital providers from the EMT level up through paramedics and even flight paramedics, uh, flight nurses, they all provide care in the field as an extension of the medical license of a licensed physician. This is called medical control. EMTs and paramedics have a wide plethora of skills and assessments that they are allowed to do or that are generally accepted across the United States, which we call their scope of practice. This scope of practice can be narrowed or widened based on individual states and even down at the individual EMS agency level. For instance, let's consider getting an IV on a patient. On a national level, EMTs cannot get IV access, but advanced EMTs and paramedics can. But EMTs can start IVs in places like Minnesota and can also start IVs as an EMT in most military roles. Likewise, if the medical director of an individual EMS agency chooses to offer the training and education, EMTs at that particular agency could also perform IVs. So while there are exceptions here and there, in general, EMTs cannot start IVs. Take this philosophy and then apply it to all of the skills that out-of-hospital providers could possibly do. Split that up between three, four, or even five licensing levels, and you can see how complicated this can get. But the main part to take away here is that an EMT or a paramedic is only authorized to perform a skill or a treatment that they are educated on, certified on, licensed for, and credentialed on. Educated means that they were taught how to do an IV. Certified means that they took a certification exam on how to become an EMT. Licensed means that they were granted the authority to function as an EMT. In this case, that authority comes from the state of Rhode Island. And credentialed means that their medical director of their agency has authorized them to follow and carry out standing orders in the absence of the physician, which in other words, we call protocols. So, when a physician is not around to tell EMTs and paramedics what to do, EMTs and paramedics can operate under these protocols without asking a physician what they should do. Some places, these protocols can be very vague, and in other places, the protocols can be pretty in-depth. In this case, the first protocol that the EMTs were accused of not following was Rhode Island Statewide EMS Protocol 1.01, Routine Patient Care. This is one of those very vague protocols that outlines, you know, in general, how patient care should be administered. Section A of this protocol says that EMTs are to 
treat life-threatening conditions in the order in which they are identified, and then manage them as indicated per age-appropriate protocols. One could argue that these EMTs did not even attempt to manage the care of the baby at all. Section B says to provide airway management when indicated following age-appropriate airway management protocols. Any EMT or paramedic in the world knows that we live and die by memorizing our ABCs, which simply stands for airway, breathing, and circulation. In almost every situation, the airway of a patient must come first and should be appropriately managed by a competent EMT or paramedic prior to moving on to B or C. In this case, the documentation did not show any attempt to manage the airway of the baby. More on this in a bit though. Section C states advanced life support or ALS providers may establish IV access in any unstable or potentially unstable patient or when required for protocol directed therapeutic intervention. Now you may be thinking that since these were EMTs that they could not have been able to attempt an IV. Couple things here. One, these were called EMT cardiacs, which in the state of Rhode Island allows them to perform some advanced life support skills that normally only an advanced EMT or a paramedic would perform, such as getting an IV and performing some advanced airway interventions. However, there is no way that these EMTs were going to be able to successfully gain IV access on a 24-week-old preemie. This would be a nearly impossible task for even a seasoned NICU nurse who would probably gain access through the umbilical vein anyway and not a peripheral vein like normal. Have you ever actually seen a 24-week-old preemie looks like? They're this big. They are tiny. It can be very intimidating for anyone who does not have a lot of experience, which unless you're a NICU nurse or an OB doctor, most of us do not have that experience at all. I certainly don't. Section D states that the EMTs are to communicate with medical control as indicated and provide entry notification to receiving hospital facility. EMS practitioners may consult directly with a medical control physician at any time they feel such communication may be helpful in the care of a patient. This one is most likely the kicker. We all get faced with some terrible situations sometimes and we all get confused and we all are forced to have to make difficult decisions out in the field. In this case, this had to have been an extremely stressful environment for these EMTs to be in, and most of us will go a lifetime without ever plucking a premature newborn out of the toilet, although I did actually do that once back in Florida. Either way, it is absolutely a standard across the United States that if and when you are in a situation where you are facing a dilemma such as this, that you should call medical control to seek further guidance. That medical control does not have to be the their own medical director, although it certainly could, but is more than likely going to be a physician who is currently working in a local emergency department. The EMTs can usually call by phone or radio and simply could have said, you know, hey doc, I have this situation going on and this is what I think I should do. How do you advise? But there is no documentation to show that these EMTs made any attempt to consult with medical direction and instead made this decision on their own out in the field. The second protocol that they were charged with ignoring is protocol 2.16, neonatal resuscitation. Now, while I truly believe that neonatal resuscitation, otherwise officially known as NRP, is one of the most important concepts and algorithms that any EMT or paramedic should know, it is one of the least used protocols and therefore probably one of the protocols that many medics are least comfortable with. 
We would call this a high acuity yet low frequency event. There is a lot to memorize in this protocol, which means there is an awful lot to forget as well. This brings up the importance of checklists and printed algorithms and how important they are to situations like this. The research and the data show us that none of us will rise to the occasion when placed under pressure like this, and we will all instead revert to whatever our lowest level of comfortable training is. This baby was a neonate, and I am positive that having a quick reference checklist of some sort to help walk these EMTs through the beginning part of this resuscitation could have certainly helped. You may be saying, you know, man, you're, you're an idiot, dude. We do not have time out in the field to pull up checklists. Yes, you do. Every commercial aircraft, every nuclear power engineering room, every spacecraft, all of them have some form of quick reference handbook to reference when something bad happens, even if they only have a few seconds left. Checklists are there to ensure that when sudden events occur that simple steps are not missed, like forgetting to flip a switch, or in this case, forgetting to assess this baby's pulse with a stethoscope or some other electronic means other than a quick brachial pulse check. Which brings us to the crux of this call and what the EMTs should have done. NRP guidelines, as well as this protocol, state that this type of resuscitation should be completed on any newborn, especially one that is not breathing or has poor muscle tone. Within the first 60 seconds of delivery, the EMTs need to warm the infant. Without immediate temperature regulation, a newborn can become hypoxic quicker than normal and will struggle to maintain a normal body temperature. The EMTs did not appear to make any attempt to rewarm this baby. They did place it in a blanket, but that clearly was just to place it in the biohazard bag, not to rewarm it. Next, the EMT needs to position the baby in a manner to open and control its airway by suctioning first the mouth and then the nose and possibly even deeper suctioning if needed with a suction catheter or a meconium aspirator. But in this case, there was no attempt to manage this baby's airway. Next, they need to stimulate the infant. The nervous reflexes of a newborn that help stimulate it to breathe and cough and move along a bunch of fetal circulation changes comes by way, in part, by flicking the soles of the feet and rubbing the baby's back. In this case, the EMT did say that he tapped the bottom of the feet, but there was no mention of whether or not he rubbed the baby's back. And finally, the big one, the EMTs are to assess for breathing and a heart rate. The documentation shows that the EMT did say there was no movement and that the baby did not have a brachial pulse, which is found by compressing the brachial artery under the bicep of a baby. But the protocol states, and NRP states, and best practices state, that to assess for a pulse and a heart rate on a newborn, that an EMT or a paramedic should utilize some form of electronic monitoring device instead of relying simply on palpating or feeling for a pulse. Why? Because a pulse is very hard to detect in a newborn, let alone a 24-week-old preemie. Their protocol specifically states for them to place the patient on a three or four lead ECG monitor to identify if they have a heart rhythm, which would help confirm the presence of a pulse. They could have used a stethoscope to auscultate or listen for a pulse, or they could have even palpated the umbilical pulse prior to clamping the cord. But they did none of these things and instead relied solely on a brachial pulse check and then put the baby in a bag and then placed it on the back of the stretcher behind the mother. You may be thinking there's no way that that baby would have been able to live at 24 or 25 weeks, but 
The science and the data tell us that babies born between 22 and 26 weeks have a reasonable chance, although not a high likelihood of survival, if they can get the baby to a NICU in time for full neonatal care. Had these EMTs assessed for a pulse according to their protocol, they certainly would have been able to detect the presence of any pulse and then begin resuscitation. But really, this isn't about whether or not there was a pulse. The question really you know, at the time was probably more about whether or not this baby was viable and whether or not the EMTs involved medical control or even the mother in their decision to withhold resuscitative efforts. There is a question that can sometimes be very difficult for any EMT or paramedic, and that question is this. My patient appears dead. How do I know if I should start resuscitation efforts or just call it or pronounce the death here in the field? This is not an easy question to answer on your own sometimes. While slightly different across jurisdictions, the standard of care and a normal expectation on how to answer this question is this. You need to work that patient, in other words, resuscitate that patient, unless they have injuries or some situation that is incompatible to support life. That would include things like trauma patients who are not breathing and don't have a pulse and who have exposed brain matter all over the ground or they got their head cut off and they're decapitated. It could be a patient who you found pulseless and apneic in bed and now has rigor mortis or stiffening of the body, or it could mean that you found a pulseless and apneic person on the floor of their kitchen, and when you roll them over, you notice dependent lividity or blood pooling on the bottom parts of their body. These would all be considered situations that would not be compatible to sustain life, and therefore, any and all resuscitation efforts should not be performed or should be stopped if they have already been started. So, in my opinion, this entire situation boils down to whether or not these EMTs thought that this baby could sustain life if they attempted resuscitation. It's hard to know what they were told when it comes to the age of the baby. Did the mother say that she was six months pregnant? Did she say she was 24 weeks? Or did she not even know? I don't know. I have to admit that that part is tough. But they clamped the cord, which is one of the signs that they thought that this kid was viable. They checked for a pulse. They checked for movement. This tells me that had they have found a pulse, they would have worked the baby. Had the baby had been moving its arms, they would have worked the baby. If not, why check for a pulse in the first place? That would be like walking up to the decapitated patient in a car accident and checking their pulse. What would be the point? In the end, these EMTs found themselves in a terrible situation. This call had to have been stressful. It had to have been hectic and emotional, but many calls are. And the one thing that would have kept these EMTs from making this fateful mistake would have simply been to have picked up the phone or the radio, call their medical control, and advise them of the situation. Because at that point, the physician will make the call, and that is exactly what their job is, to provide medical control. But if you do not call them in the first place, then you are taking 100% of the responsibility on, and you will suffer the consequences if you end up being wrong. Know your protocols. Reference your quick charts if and when you can. Involve your medical director in these situations. Involve the family. And when in doubt, always attempt to resuscitate and then try to confirm whether or not you should continue, not the other way around. I really feel for these EMTs as I highly doubt that they meant to do anything wrong in this instance. I believe they were caught off guard and that they were not prepared to face such a situation. Hopefully, others can learn from this situation now so that this doesn't happen again. What do you think could have been done differently here? If you are an EMT or a paramedic, how would you have handled this situation? Let me know in the comments below.
As always, I sure would like it if you hit that like and subscribe button. Thank you guys for watching and I do hope that everyone on here has a beautiful rest of your day.